mercy and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Come, let us worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Almighty God, on this day, you open the way of eternal life to every race and nation by the promised gift of your Holy Spirit, whom the ascended Christ poured out upon your church. Shed abroad this gift throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel, so that it may reach to the ends of the earth, and that all people may know that you are our creator and our redeemer through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 394, This Day of Thy Creating Word. God has prepared for those who love him. He has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything and reveals to us the will of God. Therefore, let us in penitence open our hearts to the Lord who has prepared good things for those who love him and confess their sin and dependence upon his grace. Let us confess our sin together. Almighty God, our maker and redeemer, once we were far off from you, having no hope and cut off from you in the world. But now Jesus Christ has brought us near to you, reconciling us to you. We poor sinners confess that we have been sinful and unclean 
and that we have sinned against you by thought, word, and deed. Therefore, we flee for refuge to your boundless mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, since you have given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy on us, and for his sake grant us forgiveness of all our sins, and by your Holy Spirit increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace we may come to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. There is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. People of God, I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ that all those who do confess their sin and and have faith in Jesus Christ are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. Saints of the living God, the Apostle Peter in his second letter tells the church this, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. The Christian life is a life of restraint. It is a disciplined life. And unfortunately, discipline is severely lacking in our culture today. But in the church, we're not to pick up the ways of our society in that sort of uh, self-absorbed, undisciplined kind of life. Instead, we are to be living a life of restraint according to God's grace and his word. We all have sinful impulses that need to be restrained, things like anger and gossip and selfishness and strife and jealousy, licentiousness, slander, and so on. These are mentioned in the epistles, but we also know them from our own experience. In our society today, among other destructive behaviors, people freely indulge in sexual immorality, arrogance, and degrading others. Christ gives us grace for self-control today. Living in an autonomous, individualistic culture, we might hear the self in self-control. We hear that, that phrase used, that, that word uh, used in Scripture, self-control. So we might think it's all up to us to um, somehow create this self-control. But it's not that way at all. The virtue of self-control is something that grows in us as a community that helps us develop the virtue of self-control. It grows in us as we're part of the Christian church of Christ's people, and it is built up in us by the Holy Spirit within the community as as we help each other in that self-control. The fellowship of Christ's people helps us turn away from indulging our sinful passions. The virtue of restraining your sinful impulses is not something that you do by yourself. Christ gives you grace within the church to have self-control. People of Christ, pursue the virtue of self-control in the church, and don't be uh, alarmed with each other when you see people struggling with that. Instead, that's what we're all to be doing, is seeking to be faithful and living with that self-control by the grace of God with each other. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 336, Spirit, Strength of All the Weak.
So we just sang that the Holy Spirit would help us pray. Let us now pray and join our prayers together to the Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, mighty God, blessed are you who created all things with the Holy Spirit, by your Spirit, who moved upon the waters of creation and breathed life into man, who anoints your people with Christ's gifts, and who is the promised comforter, the first fruits, the sanctifier of the new creation of your salvation. And now with your church, we give you thanks for your eternal son, Jesus Christ, who has ascended into heaven and has given to us the spirit who was promised long before. We have received the seal of our redemption in Christ, the guarantee of our inheritance. We have received this comforter who comes from you, the spirit who makes us alive in the new creation as your holy people. And so we give you thanks and we pray to you, most holy Lord, with the privilege of your children in this new life of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we pray for Joe Biden, our president, for our representatives and senators, for Debbie Stabenow and Gary Peters, for Gretchen Whitmer, our governor, all those who govern us. Grant us government that protects us, makes wise decisions, and knows what is right and wrong. We make petitions for the justices of the Supreme Court and all the courts of this land that their judgments would be in conformity with goodness and truth and justice. And may there also be managed order at the borders of the United States. We pray also that we would 
stand for those who are being bullied in this world in, in grand, great ways, and we especially think of Ukraine and pray that you would make that war to stop. Here are our prayers for our government and for the decisions it has to make. Father, we pray for Christ's beloved church throughout the world, those whom he joins together and who sing your praise with one voice. We pray that you would lift up the heads of those Christians who are beaten down and who mourn. Lift them up with hope, the hope of Christ's salvation. We pray for the churches that are persecuted. Hear our prayers. We ask you for grace for the missionaries of our church who are often in discouraging places or difficult situations, including Mark Richline and his family in Uruguay. Their weakness is apparent. They become sick in body. They do not understand everything. And yet, may the grace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ be ever strong as they work with the churches where they are proclaiming the gospel. We pray for our foreign missionaries. We thank you for the free work of your spirit in our church, the continued growth of the OPC, for compassion and humility, and the determination of our session in Presbytery and the General Assembly to wisely guide the church. Most of all, grant to the OPC the ability to act in love for the whole church, to be interested in dialogue and conversation with other churches to humbly regard its own position and to understand our own biases and weaknesses. Hear our prayers for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And now we raise to you our prayers for those in need in this congregation and those who are on our minds. Bless us with your grace. For the restless to know the rest of Christ, for the fearful to receive peace, for the sick to be made well, for those who give care to have patience and be encouraged as they care for their spouses or for their friends. Here are our prayers for Fawn and Bob Bartoski, for Luca, for Tammy and her family, for Julie and Don, for Michael, for Eduardo and Shirley, for Jeff and Linda, for our friends Becky, Phil, Bob, Angie, Tom, Dominique, Caroline, Karen, Vicki, and others we name to you in silence. Merciful Father, heal them and comfort them in body and soul, and we pray that they would have faith in Christ, you would keep their faith in Christ at all times. We also pray that we may interact with students at Lawrence Tech in the fall, and may more and more of the young, younger generations be set free to have faith in Christ and love and serve you. With confidence, our prayers ascend to you, since the Spirit himself intercedes for us, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Please be seated. And let us join together in praying for the Spirit's illumination as we open the Word of God this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us here this morning, for calling us together as a family and to meet this day in your name. And we thank you as well for giving us your word and making it so uh, accessible to us in this day and age in a way that many of our brothers and sisters in the world and throughout history do not enjoy. Lord, as we open your word this morning, please uh, open our hearts as well. Send your spirit to open our minds, to give us understanding, and may we be edified and directed by uh, what you have for us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews 
devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Our epistle reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 8.
verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Finally, our gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Verses 4 through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. We live in a fragmented world. 
Divorce, war, transience, moving from one place to the next, identity, confusion, all of these things contribute to a fragmented world, and there are many other things that add to it as well. Life is broken apart. Some of you know my own story of dislocation. I was born in New Mexico. After two years, we moved to Arizona, where my sister was born. Nine months later, my dad took a job in Lancaster, California. Two years after that, he was offered a better job in Washington, D.C. We lived in Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., for four years. One of my brothers was born there. Then we moved to Colorado, where my other brother was born. I count Colorado my home because my formative years were lived there, but we had no extended family in that state. After I graduated high school, I went to college in Tulsa, Oklahoma. From there, I went to graduate school in Richmond, Virginia. One of those years was an internship spent in Dallas, Texas. After the internship, Heidi and I moved back to Richmond. Upon graduation from the school in Richmond, I accepted a call as pastor to a church in Royal Oak, Michigan. Five years later, I moved to another church in western Kansas. This lasted for three years, and then I took my present call to this church, Providence OPC, back in the Detroit metropolitan area. And I can almost do that by memory. A sense of rootedness in a town is missing from much of my life. I've always had that sense that I don't really fit into the politics and the the culture of any place I've lived. Most of my city life seems disconnected, except for that 12 years in Colorado where I uh, had time to make friends and sink into the ground a bit. And now I've been in Michigan uh, for these last 25, 26 years, and obviously I'm feeling um, like roots are going in here as well, but these aren't the formative years of my life. <clears throat> other than that, other than Colorado, my life feels chopped up into a bunch of different pieces. Now, my story is not unique in the United States of America. For many, it can be more fragmented than what I've experienced. So I've experienced fragmentation in terms of location, but for some, it's even worse. Recently, I read about somebody who lived in 16 different places in 17 years as a kid. 16 places in 17 years. Now, there's a whole group of writers that have picked up on this fragmentation, and they're called postmodernist writers. writers, and then they've drawn attention to that fragmentation of life with their stories. Many of them write stories that disintegrate as they move along. Can you imagine reading a story? I don't know if you've read any of these, but if you're reading a story and it just sort of falls apart as you read it, it it's, that's odd, isn't it? Don't you normally want a story where everything ties together and comes together at the end? Some of these writings distort time and they jump around with the character. The character descriptions jump around, the places jump around, and it becomes confusing. One writer is named John Bart, and he wrote a novel called uh, uh, Giles Goat Boy with several disclaimers. So he wrote the story, but then he puts these disclaimers into at the beginning of it. And one disclaimer even argues that the book was, was not written by him. He tells you that he didn't write the book, that rather he was handed to him on a tape, like from a tape recorder. And it's all designed just to simply show fragmentation. And this is how literariness.org, a website, explains postmodern literature. Among other things, postmodernist works are also fragmented and do not easily directly convey a solid meaning. That is, these works are consciously ambiguous 
and give way to multiple interpretations that are designed to be interpreted lots of different ways. The individual or subject depicted in these works is often decentered without a central meaning or goal in life. And again, it's to reflect the kind of world society we live in today. In short, postmodernism gives voice to the insecurities, disorientation, and fragmentation of the 20th century Western world, or now we could say the 21st century. But it's not just the world itself that's broken apart. Our relationship with God is fragmented. We live in a society that divides the secular from the sacred. It disconnects the spiritual from physical. It keeps faith out of public space. And Christians might also have fragmented relationships with God, at least experientially. We say we believe in God, but then we disregard his word and live the way we want to live. Or we might worship him on Sunday and forget about him Monday through Saturday. Or we pray to God when we're in trouble, but when things go well, we have nothing to say to him. Life in this world is fragmented. One of the things that makes our scripture lesson stand out this morning is that they present a center and connectedness in the world. And it comes out with the Spirit of God who is mentioned in all of our readings. Today is Pentecost Sunday. It is a great Lord's Day to pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 104 gives us a view of the world as God's creation. I'm going to focus mostly on Psalm 104. It gives us a view of the world as God's creation. It it is a different view than the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, just to put it briefly, uses a framework of days, and it tells of God creating the realms and then filling each realm with the creatures. For example, in the Genesis creation story, God separates the waters from the land. And then Genesis says that God fills the waters with the fish and sea creatures, and he fills the land with beasts and insects. And then on day six, man is created as the premier creature in God's creation. And that's how Genesis puts it together. Psalm 104, on the other hand, gives an expansive view of the whole creation. It's like God looking out over all his work. To a lesser degree, we too can have an expansive view of at least part of God's creation. And this has happened to me, uh, for me a a few times, but often it's when I go birding. Uh, A couple birding spots have had that sort of expansive view. One was at a national seashore on Santa Rosa Island in Florida. It's on a bird migratory path, and around the first week of April, birds descend on the spot as they make their way north. A lot of them are coming from the Caribbean islands in Mexico, and they just settle right there for a brief time. One year, we timed it just right, and there were warblers and flycatchers and herons and buntings and marsh birds and raptors and many other kinds of birds everywhere. Birders loved it, and I was not alone looking at these birds. There are people coming from all over the world. It's like McGee Marsh over here um, near Sandusky. Birders come from all over the world at the right at this time to see these birds. And my wife was there uh, in the midst, in the thick of it all, um, in this spot out in the um, bushes. And she saw one man jump up on a bench with his binoculars in hand, full of excitement. He's just taking it all in. He's just up on that bench. And he's just looking around and uh, all around him. And he told her that in one spot, in that one spot, in two hours, he had seen 60 to 70 species of birds. Now, this is a 
professional or a, a birder knows what he's doing. I, I always have to go out. I'm amateur, but he knew what he was doing, and he had spotted and recognized 60 to 70 species. That, in case you don't realize it, that is a bonanza in bird language. Thanks to streaming services, we can watch nature films like Our Planet. You don't have to go down to Santa Rosa Island. You can watch Our Planet. There are different, uh, vers- uh, different um, uh, films of that. And they show you with crystal clear filming the wide range of life in a certain region of the planet. Um, and there, it's just it's breathtaking. It's beautiful when you watch those. Well, Psalm 104 has that kind of expansive view. It's taking it all in in amazement. But it doesn't do this in a secular way that divides nature from God. Psalm 104 gives an expansive view of the creation of God. And I'm going to suggest that if you have your Bibles that you follow along because we did not <coughs> read or use the psalm, all of Psalm 104 for the uh, responsive reading. We used uh, the central part of it. But um, I am going to go through the psalm a little bit here uh, to help you understand what's going on. It's an expansive view of the creation of God. It's not a benign view. See, about as exciting as the nature programs get in their view of creation is the animals eating each other or mating. That's about as exciting as it gets in those nature movies. Psalm 104 is actually much more exciting than that. In the psalm, God is a warrior. In the ancient world, it was believed that creation was a cycle of life and death, and there was this Egyptian hymn a very old, ancient Egyptian hymn, to the god Aten. And it's one of these uh, creation stories about the cycle of life and death. Aten was the sun disk deity in Egypt. So if you look up at the sun and think of it as a disk of bright light, that's how they understood Aten. The hymn is called the Great Hymn of the Aten. And one of its lines says, The world came into being by your hand, According as you have made them, when you have risen, they live. When you set, they die, the, the creatures. Aten, the sun disk, rises to give life, but when he sets, the darkness of death creeps back and covers the earth. And that's how the Egyptians, at least with this god, saw the, the, the uh, creation around them. In some myths, there were many gods, and one of them was the creator god. So most of the religions had lots of gods, and one of those gods would be a creator god. But in those myths, there's conflict between the gods about who would be king over the others. That's always an issue when you have a pantheon of gods. Which one's going to be the top dog? One god creates the world, but there's always the threat that the rival gods would undo the creation and turn it back into chaos. In some of the creation stories, the act of creation is actually an annual cycle where the gods of chaos must be defeated by the creator gods over and over again. Think summer and winter. So in winter, you have chaos taking over, and life is disappearing and dying, and then the, uh, usually the sun god comes back, and the spring comes, everything starts to grow, and, and so they see this as an annual cycle of a battle between the creator God and the forces of chaos. Now, Psalm 104 begins with God as the warrior who is sovereign. Verses 1 through 9 portray the Lord as a royal God. So when you read verses 1 through 9, you need to think royalty. You need to think king. Verse 1b says he's clothed with splendor and majesty. And we just heard about, we just saw maybe on TV, the coronation of King George III, used to be Charles. And you saw his his regalia, you know, his 
crown and, and his robes and everything. And he was clothed like that. This is saying that God is, it's portraying God as this warrior king who's clothed with splendor and majesty, and he's clothed in light itself. Verse 2a, covering yourself with light as with a garment. This isn't just some kind of brightness. This is his kingly garb covered with light. And he builds his royal house on the seas to show his kingship over them. Verse 2b talks about him building his, his dwelling. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And the Jewish translation says, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And verse 3a says he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. If you want to show someone that you have, that you rule over them, build your house on top of where they live. And that will make it really clear that I'm, I'm on top of you. And so God builds his house, his chambers, with its curtain stretched out on the waters, verse 3. Then he goes forth as a warrior using the thunderstorm as a cloud. The second part of verse 3 says he makes the clouds his chariots, he rides on the wings of the wind. And the winds are his assistants. Verse 4, he makes winds his messengers. The Lord, the warrior, triumphs over the primeval ocean and manifests his power over it by banishing the waters that cover the earth. Here the seas have the power of chaos. Uh, As the people in the ancient world looked out at the Mediterranean Sea, looked out at other waters, uh, even the Sea of Galilee, and the storms came along, the waters are whipped up in the huge waves, and they knew that their ships were in great danger. And some of those waters are crashing onto the, to the land, and, and if they have villages or whatever near the land, they can fear flooding. So there's a strong sense of the power of chaos that is attached to the waters, to the oceans, the seas. And so um, <clears throat> verse 7 says, This warrior king, God, at your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took to flight. And by conquering the waters, the mountains and the valleys emerge. The waters want to overwhelm everything and cover everything, but God banishes them, puts them to flight, and so then the mountains and the valleys emerge. Verse 8, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. So the Lord created the land where man and beasts could live. The Lord confines the waters, the chaotic waters, to an appointed place from which they could not return and cover the earth. Verse 9 says, you set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So in short, the Lord eliminates the gods that would bring chaos and crisis and destroy his creation. He eliminates those powers from being able to take over and take control. This is warrior language. This is king language. This is very, very uh, provocative. Now, Psalm 104 tells us, tells us that the Lord's victory establishes a permanent and reliable creation. There are no other gods. They're eliminated. Creation is not a cycle to be repeated over and over again. Rather, the Lord reigns and the earth is secure. There is a steadiness of the world. Its processes, seasons, and productivity are consistent God's reign gives it consistency. The Lord rules over his creation, and it depends on him. And there's a connectedness in that between the creation and its creator. The second part of the psalm expresses the dependence of everything on God. 
Even man is dependent on God just like everything else. Man sort of kind of fits in like with, with the rest of creation here. In this, in this psalm, man isn't just given this ex- exceptional place, even though man does have an exceptional place in God's creation. Here, it's to show that man and everything else is dependent on God. <clears throat> so with wonder, verses 10 through 23, wander through the creation, reviewing how God provides for his creatures. How are they dependent on him? And so verses 10 through 22, uh, 23 go through the creation just reviewing how he provides for his creatures. One, he gives water. God gives springs of water bubbling up from the ground for every beast to drink. God gives branches of the trees near the water where birds may quench their thirst and sing. You see, this is, this is uh, in defense of the birders. Rain is sent from God and it waters the earth. So God gives the water. God gives food. God gives the grass for the flocks and the herds to eat. Furthermore, God gives the fields of crops that farmers cultivate. God even gives the joy of vines and grapes for man to enjoy. This isn't just, just, uh, just plain old water to drink. He's actually giving a, a real enjoyment to man um, with the vine. He gives oil. And in the ancient world, often oil was poured over the head. It was, it was rubbed on the body. And if you've, I don't know that you've ever done this, but if you were to do this with like olive oil, it makes your skin radiant. It makes your hair glisten. And so it, it represents, it shows that uh, God provides um, that kind of radiance of, of man depends on God who gives the rain and the food uh, that includes the olives and the oil. He gives the grain for the bread that satisfies man's hunger. And then shelter. Uh, God gives homes for the birds and the trees. He gives mountains for the wild goats to leap about and hide. He gives rocks for the badgers. And God gives seasons of the year and night and day. God gives the sun and the moon to mark time for the creatures of the day and the creatures of the night. The sun and the moon are God's creation. That's strikingly different than the other creation stories in the ancient world. The sun and the moon are God's creatures. They're not gods. And that's very different than the Egyptian myth of Aten, who is a god, but a god who sets in the evening and can't uh, keep this creation safe, at least through the night. He must come back in in the uh, morning and bring back the light. So with God, darkness and light are given for work and rest. It's not a battle. The, the uh, sun setting in the evening and the moon rising in the evening is not a battle between different gods trying to control whether the earth is going to be in the light or the day. So it all overlaps, this creation of God, and it's interdependent. It's interconnected. Even man is interconnected with it. In Psalm 104, man is dependent on God just like all the other living creatures. Man depends on water and food and shelter and night and day, just like the birds and the goats and the badgers. The psalm looks out over God's creation and it breaks into amazed praise in verses 24 through 30. And we, uh, that was part of our responsive reading. And so when I was working on this, I couldn't help but think of the song by Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World. He didn't write it, but he sang it and made it famous. 
He says, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Now, the way Louis sings it, and I love his voice, Satchmo, um, it's, it's, it's just that, got that kind of calm to it. Um, so it, it maybe doesn't strike us as filled with amazement, even though he's saying, what a wonderful world. But it is. It's a song that, that's indicating the, the ama- with amazement, or at least with wonder, the world. And there have been many other songs filled with wonder and amazement at God's creation. But unlike so many songs in our secular society, the psalm gives praise to God. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. They all look to you to give them their food in due season. The creation is connected to God, and there's wonder and amazement at that. And then right there in the middle of the psalm's amazed wonder in verses 24 through 30 is the Spirit of God. The Hebrew word for spirit can also be translated breath. And if you have some translations, will translate it as breath, or at least put a little footnote in there that the word spirit could also mean breath. And that's true. It can mean spirit and breath. Traditionally, the church has understood this verse as the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is at work in creation. The Spirit gives animating life to the creatures made by God. And Psalm 104 does not equate the two. The breath of the creatures is not the same thing as the Spirit of God. The breath of the living creatures is not the Spirit of God. They're not the same. The creature's breath is given and taken away by God. The Spirit creates that breath. So listen to verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. The one spirit gives life to the creatures, and this connects the creation together as well. The one spirit gives the animating life to the creatures. Psalm 104 praises God for the connectedness of his creation. It's held together by him. And the psalm flows along beautifully. Once you catch on to what's going on, this warrior who makes his creation in such a way that he... um, chases out the powers that would bring chaos, and he creates a world that's filled with his living creatures and that are dependent on him, and it's flowing along beautifully, and then at the end, it's jarring. Verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. That comes out of nowhere. It seems to just pop up, and actually, I think that's a good way to think of sin and wickedness. It pops up. Why do they pop up in Psalm 104? Well, it's because there are sinners and the wicked in this world, and they don't fit in God's creation. Doesn't that really stand out here? Here's this amazed, expansive view of God's creation, and these things don't fit in it, wickedness and sinners. They're like a toxic waste dump in the middle of a beautiful mountain valley. They're like a bombed-out building standing on a lovely beach. And the psalm calls for their removal. If you take the view of the psalm, of course they should be removed. They don't fit. Sinners and the wicked defy the sovereign rule of God over his creation. They rebel against God. They act against him. God conquers the powers of chaos that threaten his creation. But what do sinners and, wicked and the wicked do? They promote chaos in God's creation. God creates life. They bring death. God feeds and waters and shelters his creatures. Sinners deny their dependence on God. And God is not 
rendered helpless by the sinners and wicked in his creation. It's not like that there's some kind of dualism going on here where they are these offsetting powers. It's not like that at all. It's just that they have shown up in God's creation. Psalm 104 doesn't explain that. We can use other parts of Scripture to understand why. But um, they show up in God's creation, but God's not rendered helpless by that. His, he's not just suddenly like just throws up his hands and doesn't know what to do because his creation has been ruined. He redeems them. There's also a connectivity between creation and redemption. It's not like the God who created everything is different than the God who redeems everything. Because the God who creates and the God who redeems is the same God, creation and redemption are connected. And there in the middle of creation and redemption is the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit of God that gives life in creation, we see that in Psalm 104, gives life for redemption. And the other lessons that we heard this morning speak to this. Acts tells the story of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And the apostle Peter stood up and preached a sermon on what had happened. It was the day that God had promised with the prophet Joel and Peter's sermon. You might say the text for his sermon was from Joel chapter 2. It was the day of God's salvation that was promised for sinners and the wicked. They're the ones who need to be saved. Because Jesus Christ had died for sinners and was raised up into new life, God sent forth his spirit to create this new life in those sinners. The Apostle Paul explained this to the church. In verse 11 of of Romans 8, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, your bodies, your, your life has been decayed by sin. God gives a new life to it by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God gives life. He gives life to the creatures of God's creation. And he gives the new life of Christ to sinners and the wicked. It's the life of redemption. It's redeemed life. There is the first creation and there is the new creation. And what connects them together is the same spirit whose uh, same God whose spirit is at work creating. Jesus promised the spirit to his disciples. He promised it to you. In our gospel lesson, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to the Father and he will send the spirit to them in verse 7. And the spirit recreates us so that we sinners may be connected to God in love and with his creation. So we fit Because of this new life that Christ has gained for us and the Holy Spirit works in us, we fit into God's amazing, beautiful creation because of Christ's sacrifice for us and the Spirit's work of recreating us and remaking our fragmented lives. So even though we have sinned against God and we we could be counted among the wicked who have turned against God, because of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we have been made new. We have a new life that we've been brought into that's being worked in us, and now we fit into this beautiful creation. The Spirit is at work in all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God in creation is the same Spirit of God in redemption. Now here in this fragmented world, the Spirit gives us life with place and with meaning and in relationship with God. I told you my family moved many times and we were dislocated. But with all those moves, the Spirit of God created a place for us. And that place is the church. Wherever I've lived, 
my family when I was young or when I was older, I belonged to a Presbyterian church. And I'm not saying it has to be a Presbyterian church, but that was the case for me. The Spirit created the church, and it has given me a constant, connected place in this world. And even though there were differences in styles of worship and activities in the churches, they were connected in the same faith, the same God, the same Savior, the same sacraments, and the same Spirit. And the Spirit of God does the same for you. The Spirit gives you place in this fragmented world. And those of you who are young, I hope you remember that as you grow older, because we live in a world that's going to try to fragment you more and more and just convince you to not be a part of the church, to not be rooted in that community of Christ's people. And if that happens, you'll have no place in this world. The Spirit also creates meaning for us. And there's much destruction of meaning in our world. Violence and war makes life seem senseless. Those postmodernist writers pretty much sprang up after World War II when everybody was wondering, what, what does this mean that millions of people have been killed and this horrific battle that destroyed so much of Europe and, and consumed the world for so long and it seems it's so senseless what happened? Violence and war. Workers are pushed to be robots in workplaces. Or now we're hearing about AI and robots that supposedly will make their work obsolete. And people lose purpose in life. With work to do, we have purpose. Even things that once seemed timeless, like the male and female gender, have been unraveled. The Holy Spirit creates meaning and purpose for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You can learn how to be men and women who serve our Lord. You have a mission to bear witness to Jesus in your life. The Spirit inspires you to wonder at God's creation and use it with knowledge of its interdependence, not like we just somehow can dominate it and throw it away. The Holy Spirit creates meaning and purpose for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And lastly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have a new relationship with God, a relationship where you know God and love God and pray to God. God's not alien for you. The Spirit gives you an intimate, personal friendship with God in which you talk to him and hear his word, and you hear his word spoken to you with the church. The Spirit's creative work gives you wonderment like that which is in Psalm 104. And because the Spirit gives us a new life with place and meaning and a personal relationship with God, we join the psalmist in praise to God. What else could we do? Praise to God, and we would say, we say with him, as we did before, that last line of the psalm, praise the Lord. Let us pray. Grant, O most merciful God, that your church, being gathered together in unity by your Holy Spirit, may show forth the new life of your Spirit in this world to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, One God forever and ever. Amen. We stand to confess our faith at the Nicene Creed. Originally, the Nicene Creed ended with, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, that last, the first line of that last uh, clause or paragraph. But then with Gregory of Nazianzus, we're going to talk about Gregory of Nazianzus in our Sunday school class with the high school kids. But... um, there was another council, and they fleshed that out more so it would be clear the Holy Spirit is God. 
and is uh, one of the persons of the Trinity. So as we confess our faith, let us be mindful of the triune nature of our confession, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us confess together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 341, O Breath of Life Comes Sweeping Through Us.
today, the last Sunday of the month, we collect our diaconal offering for those needs that present themselves to our church. If we could please collect that. Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We remember his offering of himself made once and for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom, and with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ your Son, our Lord. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, Lord Jesus, until you come in glory. With your Holy Spirit, bless us and these your gifts of bread and the cup that we may know Christ's real presence and true presence with us. And that we may be his faithful followers, showing your love for the world. Renew us by your Spirit, inspire us with your love, unite us in the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him and with whom and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and you, O Father Almighty, be blessing and glory and power and honor forever and ever. And we all say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
scripture says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are they who take refuge in Him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Faithful God, who fulfilled the promises of Easter by sending us your Holy Spirit and opening to every race of men and nation the way of life eternal, open our lips by your Spirit that every tongue may tell of your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Our final hymn is the insert, Holy Spirit ever dwelling. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Amen.
Please be seated, and good morning to you all. Uh, it's lovely to see you today. Um, as far as uh, announcements, I know that uh, our, after a several week for multiple reasons hiatus, uh, Gentle and Lowly uh, makes its triumphant return this week, so uh, please join, adults, please join uh, us for Christian education um, as uh, Elder Kelly continues to lead us on that. Uh, there will, of course, not be Christian education next week because it is our June fellowship meal, and so uh, please bring a dish to pass for that. Um, I wanted to give a, um, a quick update on jail. Uh, we continue to have the jail ministry, and uh, I went the other night. Terry Benjamin led on um, I think Genesis 18 um, and uh, just shared with the prisoners there, God... How, how deeply desirous God is of being merciful, um, but also in his holiness, um, what that requires. So it was a really uh, a good time. Um, if I can just share a few ongoing prayer requests for that ministry. Whenever we ask the prisoners, uh, the inmates, um, the, you know, what their prayer requests are, there's always the two things they always say. Number one, for you know, mercy from judges, justice, you know, and not, not a... Um, uh, a judge who's just going to kind of make things up. Um, so uh, you can lift that up in prayer as well as for their families. Um, these people are just deeply, deeply conscious of they don't know how their kids are doing. They don't know how, uh, you know, what their wife is up to. They don't know how their, fam- you know, parents are doing. So uh, for their families is their perpetual prayer request. And um, to that, I would add uh, on their behalf, um, just a prayer, prayer that when these uh, these inmates uh, become citizens again, um, that they would find good community. Um, there's a real, um, almost all of them, it's like, well, you know, I'm going to try harder this time, you know, to, to not, to avoid this group of friends or to, to find a church. But almost invariably, there's people that we deal with that, that know know the scriptures front to back and, you know, were raised in the church or, or have a lot of very deep knowledge, but um, they just aren't, um, they surround themselves with the sort of company that leads them down similar paths. Um, and it was, uh, it was interesting, Terry, Terry's leading, so it included the story of uh, Lot and Sodom and things like that. And uh, a verse I hadn't thought about in a while from Second Peter, he mentioned, where Lot, you know, he chose the fertile valley, he chose to live in this beautiful valley uh, where Sodom was located. Um, but that, that that troubled him, that caused him problems, and, and we get it in Genesis, but we get even in Second Peter, it mentioned that um, you know, surrounding yourself or, with the wrong people uh, can really be uh, heartbreaking, and I found it poignant because a lot of, for a lot of those uh, incarcerated, that's a real issue. So anyway, if you would continue to raise them up in prayer, um, many of them have kind of the, 
the best spiritual walk of their life is while they're incarcerated because they're surrounded. They can find a community there that's limited in what else they can do, and they spend daily time in the Word together, but they struggle when they get out. Um, other major announcements. I do have one more thing, but uh, other announcements. Just, uh, the, the Thursday night Bible studies uh, on break until September. In September, we're going to start talking about the development of the canon. How did we get the collection of writings we call Scripture? How did that come together? And uh, it's a fascinating study. We'll actually look at some other writings that didn't make it and were not included. But that's starting in September. So just just so you know. All right. Well, as a a final announcement, of course, it is the Lord's Day, but it is also uh, a very special day for the our, the first lady of our congregation, and so I would invite you all to give one of the most enthusiastic renditions of "Happy Birthday" that you have ever melodiously sang in your life to uh, Mrs. Heidi Wilson. Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, dear Nadi. Happy birthday to you. And Mrs. Wilson, if you'd direct your attention to your left, you'll see a little something that some of your friends here, not necessarily the ones operating the cart, have brought for you. So with that, please... uh, Well, Today is a very important day in the church calendar, Pentecost, and also happens to be the day of my wife's birthday. So, you know, and it doesn't always merge like that. <laughs> um, for those of you at home, Mrs. Wilson, you'll have to get in touch with her. Give her a call. Wish her happy birthday. There's more to say than I can summarize. Everybody, please enjoy a cup of coffee and uh, give Mrs. Wilson a birthday hug. <laughs> 